Hello everyone and welcome on Women Abroad, the podcast that invites young professional women to share their experience abroad and reveal the wonderful women behind these stories. My name is Françoise Fallis. I'm a certified executive intercultural and life coach and trainer. I've lived and worked as an expatriate for more than 12 years in Egypt, Morocco and Nigeria twice, and I currently live in Luxembourg. I meet young women who are studying or starting their careers abroad and hear from them about their discoveries, culture shock and the personal and professional challenges they face. What surprises, amuses, even fascinates them? How does their experience open up new perspectives and reveal new things about themselves? If you are curious about living and working internationally, this podcast will inspire you to consider new horizons. Women abroad, be inspired by women who find their true selves living abroad. Hello everyone and welcome on my podcast Women Abroad with me, Françoise Fallis. Today I'm hosting Gilles Saville. Gilles has forged a life and professional experience between United Kingdom, where she was born and grew up, France and Luxembourg. Along her way, she has developed strong beliefs in causes worth defending or even fighting for. She created circles of leadership and her expertise is highly valued. What is her perspective as a British woman living abroad? This is what we will discover now. Hello, Jill. Good morning, and thank you for that introduction. Uh, <laughs> a woman of strong beliefs. I was just processing that. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for being my guest today. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's a bit cold here. I don't know what it's like there, but uh, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Let's start with the beginning of your story. As a way to introduce yourself, could you tell us how your journey abroad started? What in your childhood or during your studies and your youth brought you to leave UK and to settle abroad? Oh my goodness, that, that would take a long time if I, if I was going from there. In my childhood, it would never have entered my head that I could do any other than live in the village I was born in. And I think it was gradually through my working life. I always wanted to see the next thing and, and see more. So um, I worked in Nottingham City rather than in the local towns when I first went to work. Then the next city, uh, Lincoln, all the Derbyshire towns, um, Then I went to Leeds and then I went to London. And when I went to London, I thought, ah, oh, this is great. You know, this is a playground. I, I love it. And I think in my mind it was, well, what's next? I feel as if I've done this. Um, what's next? And abroad was certainly next, but it wasn't going to be with my working life, I realized, because I was a civil servant. And um, what brought me here was a man. I, I saw him on uh, on a website and we were talking and uh, a year later, just over a year later, I moved here and that was 12 years ago. So if anybody's thinking about internet dating, I can just say it works. <laughs> and so you settled in France. I did. And I remember in my first three weeks 
I said to my family at home, the world is bigger. I, I got that bigger perspective instantly from living here, possibly because I lived uh, south of the Luxembourg border. So I'm 20 minutes from Belgium, from Luxembourg, from Germany. And so just the novelty of crossing borders <laughs> with no passport, no nothing. This was this was new to me. And I felt as if the world was my oyster. And of course, Zoom and COVID have opened up the world now beyond Europe to me. Definitely. Did, did you experience any, what it's called, culture shock when you arrived? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? There are little amusing things like when Laurent came to visit me in England at first, he said, your windows, your windows open outwards. And I went, yeah, that's true. And we have a window cleaner that comes. And he says, well, why? Our off windows open inwards so that we can clean them. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> how, how simple is that? So, so there were just little things. But in terms of shock, I would, I would guess it's probably around all the culture, like the food, like the... In the UK, we get the food out of the way and then we would sit and continue over a drink. Whereas when I first came here and we went out for dinner and it took four or five hours at somebody's house and I'm sat thinking, just bring the next course or you know, what? It, that was really difficult. And a wedding, when I went to my first wedding and at one o'clock in the morning there was no dessert appeared yet. Uh, I, I so, uh, you're, you're French, but I found that really hard, yes. So in, in UK you take less time to have, to have lunch, whereas in France you take a much longer break. It, it was in the evening. You know, you go to somebody's house for dinner, you arrive at seven and... You might get dessert after 11 or 12 and I'm tired and I'm thinking my digestive system really doesn't want to eat at this time of night, you know. It's, uh, so, yes, you have to adjust. Clearly, everybody else here is, is okay with this. It's very sociable. Um, yes, it's more centered around the food. And the cheese course coming before dessert, I, I got used to that very, very quickly. And I would never have it afterwards now. And they make such a fuss of the cheese. And you have to have the right wine that comes with the cheese. So I, I know I'm talking about food a lot, but that was, yeah, that's a lot about the French culture, I guess. Mm, it's cultural and, and social too. It's a way to, well, you, you discuss and it's, it's much more than the food in itself, probably. Though it's a pride in France, cheese, wine. Exactly. And a lot of that is uh, my fault because I didn't get fluent with the language. And of course, if you are somebody who likes a good conversation, who likes, uh, who makes their living really out of speaking, to be in an environment where you've got a few words open to you, so you spend most of those hours silent. Um, it's totally my fault, you know. Um, that would have made it so much better. But living 
just south of Luxembourg, I realized in Luxembourg, many people speak and understand English. So there was my market. And uh, we tend to do things when we need to. And I never needed to. So, at, and when you, you settled, how did you integrate in France? Did you directly go to Luxembourg to find, to find a work? How everything took place? Looking back, when I first came over, Laurent lived in a, an apartment in Metz. And so we, we lived there and I had left work. I retired early, I was 52. And it was a great benefit to be able to retire and then relocate. Looking back, I realized how, just how exhausted I was. The last year of my working life had not been pleasant. And I thought, this is great. Retirement, just sign me up for it. I don't ever need to do anything again. And uh, we just potted round mess. It was the crisis. Uh, Laurent had been made redundant. So from the June to September, we went from an internet relationship to 24-7, which was a big test. Well, and it worked. So I had no intention of working when I first came. None at all. To enjoy life. To enjoy life. And... So I went out, I had to have a new network. Unfortunately, I met people who really loved English, who really loved English people. And so there were ex-lecturers uh, in English, they were lawyers, they were... Uh, so we spoke English and... Um, so you yes, entered these circles, network. yes. Yes, you entered these circles. And, uh, and, and what did you do in Luxembourg? Because you started circles of leadership. How did you come to develop these circles? And one thing I just wanted to say about the, the Tammy Mess, all of the people that I connected with were French. It wasn't that I was deliberately seeking out an expat community. That, that wasn't what I, I wanted at all. So in Luxembourg... After a year here, we moved to a small village. We decided that we'd have a couple of rooms that we would rent out with this chambre d'hôte idea. And I thought that that would keep me occupied. And then I started to drive out and I explored. And when I sat in Luxembourg, I realized, oh, they understand me. If I was going to work, what would I do? So I was already a qualified coach. And I just joined everything I could. I joined Toastmasters. I joined the coaching ICF chapter. I joined the British Chamber of Commerce because that's what we did. And I just started to meet people. And I became a coach. But you asked me about the leadership circles. I realized that I needed more than that. And... Job why? Why? Uh, because why? Because I think when you first start as a coach, it's hard to make a living just doing one thing. And 
coaching was not as understood probably in Luxembourg as it was in the UK. The market wasn't as um, developed. And I thought if I could do some training, uh, management training, things like that, then that would be another string to my bow. And that's when I came across John Maxwell, who I'd never heard of. He just happened to be advertising on LinkedIn that he wanted to create a team to create his legacy. And I joined his team. And leadership suddenly became something that I was interested in. I didn't think that leadership had anything to do with me, my entire working life. That was something for people like Churchill or Gandhi. Um, but when I heard there's a different type of leadership, that is one that you have to put yourself forward, you have to develop other people, you are there to serve them. They are not there to serve you and make you look good. I thought, all right, okay. So it's not being arrogant to put your hand up and say, well, I think I can do this. It's, uh, I can help. What, what can I do? So I got into this subject of leadership, particularly self-leadership. How can we force ourselves to do what, we know we need to do, but we need the mental strength to force ourselves to do it. So that's the thread that I've followed really over the last 10 years. Mm. It has something to do with finding your own identity, so following what you're meant to do in your life. Yes, and I so understand people who become unemployed and a bit lost because we tend to live Our identity is around our work. Our identity is in our title, maybe. And you don't realize what this loss of status. Uh, I use status in the term of our brain needs status. So I'd gone from having this title of director to who am I? What am I? And trying to feel good about myself <laughs> without a title. Definitely self-leadership has something to do with resilience. Exactly. When you arrived, when you started your circles in, in Luxembourg, because market is quite multicultural and it was quite great for you, you met a lot of people, not only British, but people from everywhere in the world. What was your impression of the Luxembourgish market? I just thought Luxembourg was such an incredible country. We make such a fuss in the UK about immigration. And I know that when I was over there, there were lots of places that had little or no diversity. And I came here to a place where 48% of the, certainly the working population in Luxembourg were non-Luxembourgish. And I thought, how does the country absorb this? How does How does it cope with this? So it, it taught me a lot, I think, about diversity and, and how do you manage that. Did you perceive your British citizenship as an advantage to integrate um, the Luxembourgish market? Was it an asset? And that's interesting. I think looking back, it possibly 
is I think there's quite a big expat community. But living in France, I never really got into that social community because it would involve being there in the evenings and you know that, those kind of things. So, um, but certainly the Britishness had some kind of allure at that time. I don't think it does now. I think we've done ourselves a huge disservice, but we, we won't go there. Well, the situation has changed. Now it's Brexit. And how do you think it is now? According to you, are British citizens perceived, accepted and welcomed in, in Luxembourg? Has it changed or is it still the same as before? I think I am still treated the same. No, Nobody blames me for anything. Many people in the European institutions, for example, would start to talk to me and say, what's happening? What? What's happening in the UK? Why would they think this, you know? Why have you got things in your newspaper saying that we're producing laws and regulations that, that just aren't true? And I, I have no answers for that. Um, and, yeah, I, I think many people can't understand why we have inflicted such harm on ourselves. And I'm hoping that it, it comes right in the end, but it will take a while for anybody to trust us again, I think, because you only trust people who, when they sign up to any kind of uh, agreement, they then stick to it. They don't start renegotiating it straight away after. So I think it will take us a time, take time for the European community to trust us and to want us back. And as a British citizen living abroad, do you perceive your country in a different way now than if you had not travelled abroad? I do. I think when you're on the outside looking in, it's quite easy to get caught up in the sound bites on social media and forget that actually a lot of your friends are still there, and if your family's still there, not everybody's like that. Um, and in fact, I've come full circle, you talked about nationality. I was extremely saddened with the whole Brexit vote and the fact that in order to be secure over here, in order to maintain the rights that I'd take for granted really, I would have to secure some kind of citizenship and obviously I lived in France so that was it. But I think I was grieving for a good 18 months, so angry at being forced into becoming another nationality when actually I'd always been proud to be British and suddenly I wasn't. So I'm very, very pleased that France has given me the second nationality. Okay, so you have both. This year. Okay, you have both citizenships, British, French. Okay, not Luxembourgish. No. No, no, you don't live here anyway. You work here. Okay, and um, if you had to compare in terms of values, the the deep values in in United Kingdom and the values you find in France. Um, What, what would you say? I think people are people, wherever. So I find Laurent's family and Laurent's family values fit very 
well with me. They welcomed me to me. I, I was very lucky, really. So families, families and people are the same. As a nation, I noticed France loves to be out on the street, loves to have a voice, loves to have this right to demonstrate and protest, which in the UK we seem to be wanting to give up that right. There's a move in the government to change laws limiting things, which is, which is quite worrying, whereas in France they very clearly want to maintain that. Um, and the other thing that I think was noticeably different for me was the separation of state and religion. In in the UK, we have more of a, a more of a mix, I guess, which I've never really considered. But now I realise in France, it's extremely important for them to for religions to have no part in the state. So that was something else I, I learned. And do you, do you miss UK at times? If you'd have asked me this two years ago, I would have said, not really, just my family. But I was going to see them regularly, four or five times a year. Um, the world has changed. The world changed with COVID. Not being able to see my family for over a year was painful. And then all of this climate change, which I started to be more involved with. I interviewed um, Zoe Cohen from the Extinction Rebellion because I was curious to have a, a direct, unfiltered view of them, not through the medium. And so I started to think any kind of traveling back and forth is probably not a good thing. So now, after spending three weeks in September with my family, it's now in my mind to move back, which surprises me as much as it surprises everybody. But I think if you're only over there for a few days at a time, you don't really see how people are living. And you don't see how your parents are aging or your children are. And you're there for three weeks and you suddenly realize what a whole, and probably <laughs> full of my own self-importance here, but I think I left a hole that nobody criticized me for. One of your questions that you sent me was about how did they What did they think about me living? My family, my sister, were so supportive of me. No, so that's important. Me. But I feel it. I feel I left a gap, which I now need to go back and fill. Mm. You mean an inner feeling of abandoning them? Um, I think this links to when we make decisions, we need to understand that we're making the best decision for now. And when I came over here, I made the decision that my parents didn't need care. My parents were very fit and healthy in the 70s. And um, now they're 88. And they're not so fit and healthy. 
And, and so when making the decision to come over here, it was never a decision to, and I'll be there forever. Yes, nothing, nothing's forever. Nothing is forever, of course. We adjust to a situation and we make decisions according to the moment. Well, thinking it's the best at the moment we make it. We haven't talked yet about the initiative you, you made about the creating a podcast too. So would you like to say a few words and what's the origin of this initiative? I think it was inspired... I like speaking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether people like listening. You had the right place then. <laughs> I like speaking. Um, I like trying to put a message across. And of course, COVID limited at first it limited that and I started to get quite lonely in a way I guess and I was thinking how can I I know some of the things that people battle with maybe I could put them in a 10 minute 10 minute podcast here and there and so this is a, a little bit I'm ashamed of I signed up for Podbean in May So the year that, uh, 2020, and I didn't do my first podcast till January. Now, this says a lot about if you don't set any goals, if you don't put an end date, if you do, you know. Um, so I invited people and started to ask them about their story. What inspired them and what brought them to now? And were there any takeaways and this started to get some traction people were really curious about the human side of people that they probably just saw in the business world so so yes and and i found i really enjoy it i don't know where it's going but i do love the fact that people sit and talk to me and tell yes. me their story <laughs> and unveil their story That's very, that's very interesting. And with the people you interview or in your circles, how do you think women are perceived in the professional sphere and in society in Luxembourg? That's a big question. When I first came over here and started to talk to people in Luxembourg, I had this impression that the whole diversity and inclusion and the gender was quite far behind where I was working in London. That's probably because I was in the public sector and we tended to be very far ahead with things that suited working women. So, for example, I'd worked flexi time to, it was, since it was invented in the late 80s, I think. I'd never had to do nine till five. I'd worked two days a week. Uh, I'd worked five hours a day. I'd done all kinds of different ways of working. So this inflexible attitude I felt that didn't favor women and the school system, the hours, how anybody ever got to work and fitted around the school hours, I don't know, because my entire life, School started at one time, it finished at another, and it was five days a week, and <laughs> you could plan your life around it. So I, I felt, yes, uh, I don't know if that's answering your question, but it, it felt slightly behind. I, and I think it's caught up a lot more recently. And, and then what are the opportunities for women to climb the social and professional ladder in Luxembourg? 
And do you think they are promoted? And uh, women in high positions are really promoted and supported by and well accepted in the by the Luxembourgish society? I I can't really speak for the whole of uh, the business world. I can only I can only talk about people that I know. There are still big issues with women in their fifties. I would say people who become unemployed in their fifties. Now there may well be men who find it difficult to get another job in their fifties, but I still have this perception that men are respected for their knowledge and wisdom in their 50s, and women not so much. And I have my many friends and clients who are women in their 50s, and they really struggle to be valued. And Adam doesn't help. Adam sends them for things that are much lower than our what's on their CV and I don't know if this is a this is general if this is a problem with that then but yes I, I just get this sense that and I wonder are they doing the same thing for men sending them for lower things than are on their CV or or is it just women I, I don't know Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Did your podcast and your leadership circles and the fact that you live abroad change your perspective of of leadership by by women? I think the living abroad gave me access to far more people, a wider a wider pool of, of people. I think women are finding their way. It's hard to generalize women leadership and male leadership. You have some very good empathic male leaders. The thing is that in promotion terms, we tend to promote people who are extremely good at making quick decisions and are task focused and bring results. And the people side of things is not as valued. And in general, women tend to be a little bit better at the people side. So I think that's one thing that is against promoting too many women. On the other side of that coin, I still see a lot of the very successful women as being very task-driven, results-oriented, and less on the people's side. Do you think they act this way because they are in some sort of mold standardized way of thinking they they don't dare think out of the box i don't know or they they fit what they are what's expected from them and then when you are on a track you continue on this track and i think women are quite good in in developing a vision in caring for others yes that really takes me back to to when i was working and how women who go off and have children are perceived. And I suppose it was, you said I, I'm a person of strong beliefs. That was one of my first causes, I think. I was just determined that, A, when I was pregnant, I wasn't going to have any time off <laughs> due, due to it, you know. It was a natural thing. Um, and when I came back, I tried to fit back into the environment Uh, and in fact, one of the first 
areas. I, I never thought that I would fight for anything, but my leader, the leader of the office that I worked in, asked me, said, Jill, are you struggling with being part-time? Are there any issues? And I said, yes. And he said, well, why don't you form a group with the other people who are working part-time, who were all women, of course, and every month you can come and tell me what your, what your issues are. And so that's what I did. That was the first taste. But thinking about perception, later on, there was somebody who came back to work after having six months off going in the Territorial Army. This is um, like a, a branch of the real army in the UK. So they'd gone off, they, um, the civil service allows this, they can go and do six, six months. And of course, when they came back, all the skills and knowledge that they'd learned while they were there, they, they were deemed to have had some life-enriching uh, experience away. Compare that to a woman coming back after six months on maternity leave. Now, I don't know about you, but I found the shock of motherhood, the shock of sleep deprivation. It was a major project just to get out of the house in the first few weeks and remember everything. And so, yeah, there is a problem with perception. I don't think women are valued enough. I think we could consider more of the talents we develop along the way, not only in the workplace, but in our life. And you said things that had enriched their life. I mean, in their maternity leave, they developed competencies, they developed talents. And sometimes you don't realize you need to, to be made aware of what you have learned. And these, these talents could be put and used by a company differently than they are used now. It seems that you lost your time <laughs> professionally. You put your career between brackets, which is to some extent right. Of course, you were not present at work, but you developed so many things that could be used in the company. <laughs> I agree. Really a personal question now. What did you learn about yourself when living abroad? How did it enrich your own life and your own perspective of life? Living abroad was mixed up with finding I had little self-discipline. If you've been with an employer for 32 years and you've never had to structure your day. So it wasn't necessarily the abroad part, but it, it coincided with not being at work anymore. So when I had to start to build something and I realized that I really had to build me first because I wasn't equipped to to do this nor was I equipped to lead anybody else until I knew how to do it myself. Uh, definitely living abroad makes um, your habits they are turned upside down and you have to well to reorganize everything <laughs> concretely but also in your head. <laughs> yes to a certain extent it's like still being in England in this house because English is spoken so I don't really have to adapt so much so much to that but I do have to make my own deadlines I do have to put things in the diary and do my own practice so I'm very proud <laughs> anybody that knows me will know that I tried to do yoga for a number of years I think six years 
I just had a significant birthday. I was 65. And I thought, Jill, if in your mind you're going to be a healthy 75, 80, 85, you have to be a healthy 65. And I started my yoga again on my birthday, and I've done it every day since. It was the motivator that I needed. And it will never be easy. It will not always be a chore, but I realize that this is a part of self-discipline, that it benefits me. And sometimes you can't spend your life just doing things that you enjoy doing. Yes. Oh, congratulations. It's a vibrant flame of life burning in you. And uh, if you had not gone abroad, how would your life be like now? Small. How would you describe what small means? You can never give somebody an awareness. They, they need to experience it themselves, I think. And when I was saying to you, I arrived here and within three weeks I was saying the world is bigger, it's bigger. My awareness changed as to what was around, what the world was about, what was possible. You couldn't have taught me that sitting in, in England, even sitting in London. The world is bigger. So that is one, one reason I can try and have some empathy for people in the UK who are not so well off who haven't had the education that they should have had, who haven't had the holidays abroad, who haven't had the children through Erasmus schemes, who could vote for Brexit when they were told various things. So I only mention that because if people have no awareness of something, you can't criticize them for making choices. It made you more tolerant You mean in some to some extent? I don't want to say I'm more tolerant because my I, I think I have a greater perspective here than I had before. How do you think women can impact their environment? And especially if you have any message for early career women, some rules they could take they could better take. Than, the, than it is the case now. I mean, well, considering climate, COP26 is just behind us. According to you, what could women do about it? I think I would say don't be afraid to use your voice. Women have a perspective on life. They have thoughts and opinions on climate change. You see a lot of women out on the streets at the moment campaigning You see a lot of young people who are interested in the future. And we are nearing the end of our interview. And maybe you know, but I have a recurring question I like to ask to all women I interview. This is the following. What advice would you like to give to young women who are considering to live and build a career abroad? Is it a myth or a real glass ceiling opportunity? Looking at end-of-life studies, people are... that The regrets that they have are for the things that they didn't do. And I would link that to when an opportunity comes and you're making a decision, remember that you just need to make the decision for now, the best decision for now. And if something doesn't work out, it doesn't matter. 
it doesn't matter, life is long and you've got time to go and try something else. Is the glass ceiling a myth? I don't think it's a myth. I think it still exists. And But what I do ask people to do is to be, I'm going to start that again. The glass ceiling isn't a myth. It is definitely there. And what I work with women to do is to not allow that to to get them angry or embittered or to to moan about the fact that it's there, but to work against it, to work on themselves, to just do their best. Because in fact, what's that old saying? If you're angry, it's like taking poison and expecting somebody else to die. You know, those kind of negative emotions have real impact on you, your self-esteem, your health, ultimately. And so um, let's just accept the world as it is, not accept that we can't change it because we can, but accept that this is the way things are and do what we can to make them a little bit better. That's clear. Would you move abroad again if you had to, to make that decision? Would you do this again? Very. I am so pleased. I am so pleased that at 52 I dared to move countries, leave everybody behind. Um, that was the hard bit uh, with family, but I just felt that I would regret it if I didn't. I knew that there was more in the world. We only have one life, and I wanted to go and explore it. So I would definitely do it again. Yes. Thank you, Jill, for sharing your experience. It, I think it was really fascinating, very interesting conversation, and enjoy a beautiful day. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Francoise. Thank you for following us in this episode. Because an international experience can awaken incentives and reveal new aspects in women's identities, Women Abroad is the podcast that appeals to young women everywhere. Did you like this episode? Like it and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts and share it with your friends. You can also rate us and review us. Would you like to share your experience abroad? Whether you are a student, an early career woman or a more experienced professional, contact me on my page women underscore abroad underscore on Instagram and women abroad on Facebook. You can also listen to the episodes on my website women-abroad-coaching.com. I wish you a great day and a bright life. Talk to you soon.